Welcome to the HR LD podcast, where we explore cutting edge HR trends and best practices with top leaders who are shaping the future of work. Hello, and welcome back to the HR LD podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, and we are specialist HR recruiters. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Sam Reed McGregor, who is an executive coach founder of Turmeric Group and author of an amazing book, which we're going to be talking about during today's show, called Leader Awaken. As you may guess, today's show is going to be absolutely all about leadership. The Samarine founded Turmeric Group to bring businesses and people together, talking about insights, strategies, and the skills they need to translate their goals into life. Since then, Samarine's been inspiring leaders, teams, and organizations to embrace adversity as a catalyst for empowerment and well-being, and she has a unique ability to create the conditions leaders need to stretch beyond their existing capabilities. And we're going to be finding out all about how she does that during the course of today's show. We're also going to be, course, going to be talking about that new book, Leader Awakened, where Samuel explains how leaders can use their experience as a powerful point for learning, empowerment, agency and improved well-being. All hot topics for HR professionals right now. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Sammy McGregor to the HR LD podcast. How are you feeling today? Thank you, Nick. My goodness, that that was quite an introduction. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to make sense of how I feel hearing all that about myself. So thank thank you for, for saying all those things. Uh, but it is quite surreal hearing them <laughs> said about you. Um, I'm feeling really happy to be here today with you. Great to have you. It shouldn't feel surreal. You put a lot of investment into a wonderful <laughs> book, which I'm lo- I'm looking forward to really diving into the detail about. But before we do that, let me just ask this question. Ask all of my guests. What do the words human resources mean to you? Goodness, uh, great question. Uh, and and actually, I, I, I reflect on the meaning of the words human and resource. So human to me is, you know, we live in a world full of people and we share that world with people. So clearly humanity to me is around connection and the relationships that we form in that uh, environment with others. But resources has got a particularly different meaning or a slightly, you know, not 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 contradictory meaning, but but one that fits quite differently to my experience of the word human and resources is the capacity or the the this, it's, it's interesting. I looked at the Oxford uh, Dictionary and it defines it very much about the amount or the sufficiency of what we need in order to function in an in whatever context that might be. So human resources to me is something about human capacity. But the only thing I would add to that, having worked in organizations and working work with people with in an organizational context, is that it's not just the number. It's not just the amount for me. I, I, I'm we've become wiser that it's about the environment the conditions that enable that resource to be harnessed or that uh the 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 power that comes from that human resource to be to be leveraged yeah nice i think that probably gives the listeners a bit of an insight into the way you view the world as well that's why i know today is going to be a fascinating conversation um obviously a lot of the people that listen to this show they are in leadership roles predominantly within the hr or L&D space, so HR directors, HR managers, and so on. Before we jump into the world of leadership, which obviously impacts not just those, of course, confined to the world of HR, but anyone working in any commercial capacity that's that's leading others. Because you also work as an executive coach, and you obviously work with a lot of business, I'm making an assumption here that you probably do a lot of work with HR professionals directly. I know that I I also work as an executive coach, and I've got HR clients, and I know that's 
The reason I say that is because I know that the amount of pressure that HR professionals are under, particularly at the senior level, you know, in terms of strategic pressures, people pressures, they're spinning many, many plates. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your experience in working specifically with HR professionals, either from an executive coach standpoint or uh, in terms of the work the term that we've been doing um, with those kind of individuals. Okay, great. So so it, it's it's quite a diverse set of connection points that I, I would have with HR. Over the years, I've worked as a coach and as a professional, as a consultant in a number of different industries and uh, HR exists in each and every one of those. Oh. Uh, so my relationship with HR has been either as a consultant on a program or a project that's involved uh, people <laughs> and that's impacted people. And clearly from a leadership perspective or a strategic perspective, it has involved working with HR professionals to understand their bigger picture, work through what are the consequences of some of the actions and their uh, points of focus as, as HR professionals. And, and, you know, that's quite high level from a strategic perspective, all the way through to quite technical uh, sort of advisory around how does learning and development sit and coexist with some of the other checks and balances of the function that HR uh, uh, plays as a, as a, as a function. Uh, now, from a coaching perspective, I tend to work with all sorts of senior leaders. I would say the HR professional is in the minority of senior leaders, but that doesn't mean that I don't work with them. I, I certainly do. And in fact, I'm currently working with two um, in the C-suite, actually. And I would say that um, I would describe that my relationship in a coaching context has been really about some of those pressures you mentioned. It's 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 a it's a difficult job, and it's a role that needs to be played with huge amounts of sensitivity. It's it's you know sensitive from a confidentiality perspective, but it's also politically sensitive. There is interests at play, and I think the burden that that places on HR professionals is significant. And although all I would say all senior leaders would carry their own uh, pressures sure. but it is sensitive and it is different and um, I would I would also just add to that that some of the the matters that we work through are about some of the compromises they feel uh, that they have to manage that they have to handle um, and it's I would say an unenviable task I also the one last thing I'd say about my relationship with HR professionals is often with the kind of work that I've done over the years as a consultant, but also as a coach, increasingly as a coach, uh, my point, my economic buyer is the HR uh, professional or the HR leader within the business. Yeah. And so I would would I would express that the shift in, in a lot of our conversations are about looking at that cross-functional leadership, which I'm really uh, reassured by and, and and refreshed by because previously perhaps 15 20 years ago there was far more more of a siloed perspective and oh. I'm seeing a lot more of that cross-functional piece that's interesting I think something that you, you've kind of touched upon it there but your work transcends obviously leadership across all sectors we're not limiting it to HR but it's predominantly HR people listen to the show um, but also your work transcends commercial coaching as well you know you, you align it with the personal goals you know what what people want to achieve on from a life lifestyle basis and the question I wanted to ask you which I you know I've looked at some of the work you've done pre-show is you've done a lot of work in in supporting people that 
gone through a cycle of self-sacrifice. Mm. I've seen that in, in, in my own experience in my personal life. I've got friends who I think everything's going perfectly for, particularly in relationship contexts, and they've just self-sacrificed it all. It's like they feel like they don't deserve it. And we know the, the words like imposter syndrome are sometimes overused, but a lot of people wonder how they've got to certain mm. positions. And then for some, one reason or another, they, they do things and self-sacrifice it all. But I'd love to know more about your experience because you've, you've you've helped people who have got stuck in a cycle of self-sacrifice at work before. And I wondered what sort of process you work work with those individuals, how you, how you help them out. So, so two answers. One is a prerequisite to the, the more specific question you're asking. So I, I would say that there's, there's a context there that's so important for those of us uh, and those leaders and professionals who in the current environment and the current environment is laced with uncertainty uncertainty has been around for many 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 years and in fact for, for probably centuries but that uncertainty has certainly changed and it's become far more complex and it and it's heightened and and i think the frequency of the uncertainty that is experienced by leaders and organizations and the complexity of it has definitely increased so that context is really important to take into account the socio-economic, political, now environmental uh, and, and, and health aspects are, are difficult day to day, minute to minute. And professionals tend to be surrounded by that environment, which triggers, I would say, or provokes, or I'm not quite sure what word to use because I think it does manifest differently for different people and we all have different tolerances, but it triggers um, a huge amount of um, uh, tension. And, and that tension, I'm, I'm calling the word tension as in, you know, polar polarities in our experience of life. Yeah. So what I notice in a lot of people I work with, and I'm not going to exclude myself from this, having been a leader myself in different contexts and continuing to do so, is that those tensions manifest in, I'll just give you an example, you know, a scarcity or an abundance polarity. So if I'm in a situation or I'm surrounded by circumstances where I'm feeling that there's not enough and I'm fearing that there won't be enough in terms of how I make a living or in terms of the work and the vocation I'll have, or in order to support some of my social needs or my family needs, that scarcity mentality will manifest in high levels of needs for security. So it will drive some of those uh, needs and, and requirements. On the other hand, if I'm actually in, a, in an abundant uh, uh, mentality or, or, or if I'm feeling that things are going well and I have less of a risk to manage, that will be feeding more of a needs and preferences around satisfaction and perhaps will put me in a far more uh, comfortable place to think about things that will, you know, enhance my well-being or enhance my happiness and fulfillment. So the work I tend to do is around helping leaders and teams, you know, because it's group as well, it's, it's a systemic context, but leaders in that context to understand how some of these poles manifest for them, how they manifest for them individually, how they manifest for the system around them, the organizational system around them, and what interaction is played between them. And on a very, you know, just to make it really, really practical, you know, today was a, a great example for myself. I knew I was having this conversation. I like to get into a mode of reflective space so I can articulate myself clearly and think clearly and enjoy that conversation with someone like you. Uh, and I had a few 
surprises that have come up in the last 10 days. I've had a procurement process that's required huge amounts of legal interactions on my part, not my preference. Certainly does send off all sorts of antibodies in my body around, am I doing the right thing? And it, that's a threat response that I find myself in. And today I decided, oh, I'm gonna go for a walk with my two dogs a couple of hours before the call and had a few of those political, you know, um, policy things to do, had a, a session with a client and went for this walk. And one of my dogs did not want to walk. And we've just found out he's got dysplasia. So he's got pain in his hips. Uh, we haven't fully got him treatment. And so that instantly hooked me into feeling very guilty. Haven't done anything for my dog. To, and, and instantly I'm now in a space where I'd created the conditions to have the right, you know, conversation, and I'm hooked into that into that space. Yeah, for for a number of reasons, the situation with the dog was in that moment, but also some of the procurement requirements that I had to uh, address, uh, and a coaching session at eight thirty in the morning. So sure, th sure. these are the things that I think, as people, as humans, as leaders, we face day to day in the moment, and that's what the kind of work I do is to help understand. So what are the pulls? How am I going to get myself back centered into a space where I'm not, you know, panicking because my dog is in pain and we haven't addressed the medical needs. For me, that approach resonates. So I'm not a huge fan of modeling things and using models. That's just a personal preference. I like the human approach to things, making things human. We are human, we're all different and unique. Two things that stuck out for me in that response that that I I think I have some synergy here in how I would view the world, and this may not be the same for everyone that listens, but I think that, that just to, to touch upon some of the language used, you mentioned scarcity. And I think scarcity is interesting because since the dawn of time, we've people have been facing scarcity in 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 the in England and the UK until probably the generation we're living in now. It's probably the first time ever that we're not suffering the levels of scarcity and survival that we used to. Our grandparents would have done. They would have had to work very hard at all levels to create an income. And actually now there's we're in a we're in a world of abundance potentially. So I think that for me there's a little bit of people aren't quite adjusted yet to this new world that we're in. We've got access to social media and we can get things quicker, easier, streamed. It's all so much content available to us. Then there's, the, then there's the abundant answer where you've got mental health actually issues are really sky high for those that live in a world of abundance. They've got loads of money, they've achieved. And actually there's that purpose piece that then lacks and you end up with mental health going down. Am I going to lose this abundance? There's that fear of, that, of losing this, this level and going back to that world of scarcity. And it just brought up loads of questions in the way that you view it. I think there's there are some polars within that, depending on which camp that you sit in, that causes a different sort of result in the way that we view the world. And I just think it's quite interesting. I hadn't were you haven't heard the word scarcity used in a leadership context for some time. And it just threw that into me. I was thinking, only because my you know my family I was talking to my grand uh, my dad and my grandparents recently and it's like actually yeah their, their lives were very different so the the, the abundance they have for me now um and yet we don't always think about those things we don't think about them and i think what's really come up for me in the way you've responded to that is that there is always a relative experience and measure and you're describing a, a, a you know a relative difference of some of our ancestors or our predecessors yeah. that had lived experiences so fundamentally different from ours and they're defining scarcity in a way that's so different to so many of the individuals that you and I work with for sure for sure and, and that diversity is generational 
and uh, you know from 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 a different time period, but it's also diverse depending on the individual's perspectives and and, and life. Yeah, something that um, which I think probably links to what you've mentioned here. I think when we're talking about abundance, some certainly in my experience, some of the issue is you lose that that producing element of your work, and it's producing that often creates the the purpose. And I mean, we're very good at consuming in in, in certainly in the first world here, but we're, it's the producing that usually gives us value. Um, rather than sort of the bit where you suddenly sat on your own chair at the end, you want to get through that journey, the journey, if you like, rather than destination. But you've done a lot of work in talking about leaders living a life of paradox. Now, the reason I, I bring that to light is when you think about the producing side, there's uh, something that I talk about, which is the authenticity paradox, where the life, the values and, and beliefs I have now will change in the future. So that's there's a paradox there, because what I believe now I hope will evolve and speak to me again again, I'll view the world slightly differently. So there's an authenticity piece. But you talk a lot about the leadership paradox. So how does that relate to, to all of this? And what does it look like now? And, and how can we deal with it? So it, it, it's it's a really, um, I think paradox has become a, 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 a term that's been thrown around in lots of different contexts. And it's, for me, it's, it's, it's a frame that helps uh, translate the experience of people's day-to-day and longer-term experience in life. And my uh, observation of quite a few of the leaders I work with is that they tend to be caught in a dance. So the paradox is this controversy or this contradictory pattern of energy that they get caught in. Now you talk about production um versus authenticity or I, I know you didn't quite con- construct it like oh. that but I, I do see them both also in, in slightly opposing ways because on the one hand you know we are in an environment that's that's pushing us to be ambitious to stand out to show the best of who we are yeah. to bring our voices I mean I'm doing it now I'm trying to share my voice through writing a book and having a, a public conversation like this with you but on the other hand, for all of those, there is an opposing force, you know, which is slowing down, actually not doing, being, you know, taking stock with what's happened, you know, understanding some of the consequences of what we put at risk when we're trying to push and be ambitious and make a contribution that's expected of us or that we expect ourselves. And those polarities for me are such a paradox because we want people to push themselves. We want to encourage individuals and communities and societies to get out of their comfort zone and disrupt things that are no longer serving us. But equally, we we, we really do need to slow down and question what it is that we're changing, what it is that we're disrupting, what ruffles are we, what feathers are we ruffling rather? And that takes space, that takes calm, it takes patience, it takes the uh, well, propensity or the, or, the, or, the, or the openness to, to make a mistake and to, to embrace what doesn't feel very nice from failure. Not just embrace, okay, I failed, this is great, I can learn from it. It's, but what did that actually feel like? And why is it that that in itself is quite an important insight? And that for me is a real paradox. Well, there's a positive in there as well. If you understand why you failed, you can find the positives to make sure. I mean, is that there's the famous Michael Jordan, you know, I missed more baskets than anyone else, but I 
in missing so many, I made more than anyone else because I practiced a little bit harder. And a lot of the slow down piece is a common, I mean, it's a common phrase we might be familiar with, or slow down to speed up. Yes. We don't do that. We run at 100 miles an hour. And sometimes we don't always do that. What I, what really um, I thought was just to pick out something you mentioned there. And I wonder if the HR listeners, if there'll be a little bit of a, a moment where this drops for them. And I'm really just building on what something you, that you brought up, which is you talked about, you know, we, we, we get heads up and, and caught up with our, failures in the world of hr in particular though it's very rare that hr professionals ever take a moment to slow down and celebrate their successes we think well that's just what we do but there are successes every single day and actually some of the hr leaders are delivering some fantastic high level transformations but those successes can be small as well it could be turning around the, the mental health of a single employee but we just we brush it off a lot and go well that's just what i do and we don't take a moment to sit sit in that space and go actually I've had a real, I've added real value there. That that speaks to my values, my beliefs. Instead, we really get fixated on those failures, the transformation that didn't work, the extra cost we weren't expecting, the the, the revolts, the revolts that we we concentrate on. You know, there's a I can't remember what the statistic is or the phrases, but you know, we focus on the three underperformers rather than the, the 97 that are performing brilliantly. And it's so true in the world of HR. But what's your experience? And you talk a little bit about failure there, but do you do you find the people you're working with, the leaders, when we talk about that paradox, do they ever take time to to celebrate the successes as well and review that it's a lovely question and you know I was, it just takes me back to working with an executive team in november last year and they've been staring a, a pretty significant transformation in the in the financial industry and uh and it was a it was a cross-functional group of of, of execs and um you know people people the, the chief people officer was there as well and it was really interesting because my experiences that i i i'd had a a few conversations with with the chief exec and you know some of of, of his peers and and i said look um what do you think would really enable you to end the year well and propel yourselves given everything that you've achieved this year but also some of the some of the challenges that you've had to overcome and traverse and they're they're pretty significant you know political there's there's you know completely unprecedented conditions that they are in reinventing for the industry as a whole not just their business uh you know relentless environment uh and and task focus and and really good people doing really good work and they said well we're just a bit burnt out. Yeah. So I said, look, why don't we just spend a couple of hours before we even get into what's next and how are we going to do even better? And what are we going to do to change all the, the things that are no longer working? And just look back and reflect on and, and look at and, and indulge in what has happened, what we have done, the contributions which individually made and as a team, what progress has been made. And I didn't say what's been achieved. I said, what progress is being made? Because we're on a journey. Mm -hmm. So it was fascinating because initially, oh, I don't really think we need to do that. It's, you know, it's not, it's not a waste of time and we need to get on with it. Anyway, I, I insisted and I said, look, we'll, we'll consolidate it. We'll do, we'll do it for 45 minutes. Well, Nick, it was the one piece of feedback I got at the very end was if we hadn't, spent the time and by the way it was elongated because I recontracted with them in the moment and said, is this helpful and they expressed just the the catharsis that came from that in a really positive light um the re-energizing the validation that actually they have a lot more potential 
and make changes. The also the clarity about what's within their control, given what had been achieved and how much progress had been made. It was, I mean, how much more evidence can speak for itself? I mean, that question, if you're in that room, if I was in that team, it it creates energy that isn't there. It creates a positive feeling of energy, right? You suddenly have that opportunity to reflect. We don't do that enough anyway. Even this is gentle reflections. You said you took a moment before the show today just to take your dogs and have a bit of reflection time. We don't do it enough. But interestingly, when we're dealing with HR professionals or any, any leadership, any, any organisation, even in your family life, actually, from a personal perspective, I can certainly say it's true for me. Every year I set out my goals. We have our New Year's resolutions or the things we want to achieve, right? And they're usually a little bit ambitious. I think most would admit they, they set themselves targets, they're way ambitious. And at the end of the year, then we're frustrated we haven't achieved everything that we set out to do. But actually, when you fast forward that five years and think of where was I five years ago or 10 years ago, most people, not saying everyone, most will be surprised at how far they've come. And you, go, you know what, if you like, told me I'd be there 10 years ago, I never would have said it would have happened. So we underestimate what we could have got to in five yeah. or 10 years. A massively overestimated one. It sounds like that team there was like, actually, when you had a chance to look back, We've taken it from here to here. That reflection time allows you to celebrate the success and it gives you or give you gave them that awareness, which we often, I mean, that's what coaching is there for, right? And this is where you're an expert yeah. on the show because you're very, very, very good at it, very talented at it. You've written a great book about it. So if I focus on that awareness piece for a minute, we know that or we hope that improved self-awareness as a leader is a really positive thing. We don't do it enough. That kind of, I guess, is a bit of a tipping point into the world of mindfulness. I mean, it's a real fast topic at the minute. And I think a lot of people use the term and don't necessarily fully understand what mindfulness necessarily is. So I wonder if you could just perhaps bring mindfulness into the room, talk about what it means for you and how it could help those leaders that are listening to the show at the minute if they understand it and then start maybe perhaps engage some of the principles behind, you know, what 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 makes us more mindful. Absolutely. It's it's a it's a topic that's uh I, I agree with you. It's 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 probably there's a lot of curiosity. Uh there's um, my experience is that it's not fully understood and it's probably being developed. The narrative around it is being defined uh, for humanity. Uh, I have had uh, a pretty sort of deep uh, meditation experience in my in my younger years. Uh, so when mindfulness arrived as a concept, I instantly uh, could could see you know its its purpose. Now when I when I think about the the meaning of the word mindful, it's being connected with it's and and actually I would take that slightly further, which is being connected with myself, and then I'm going to take it slightly further, coming back to the point around awareness and self awareness. It's connected with my mind, how I think, you know, what cognitively is going on for me. And there's various aspects to that, uh, you know, neuroscience also has given us a lot of insight to that, but it's also being com- connected with our physiology, which connects with the mind, by the way, uh, something that we tend to separate uh, as uh, I think post-industrial revolution, it's just something that, that that has happened because it's enabled us to understand the various parts separately, but also connected with our emotions and some of those sensations that are less conscious in our body that are, you know, unseen, untalked about, not accessed typically because they're just not not conscious. And there is something different, which is our connection with the environment around us. And you know, I I know I speak to quite a few people who are, are fairly spiritual in the way they would express themselves around this. Um, and and they talk a lot about the universe. Oh, the universe is aligning, and and the stars, and 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 you know, there's there's a whole range of how people might describe that. 
in my experience, it's that connection with myself, what's situational going on now, uh, what what what's happening in the world that's also impacted in my interactions in this world that are impacted by my life story. And that for me is mindfulness. For example, today, uh, well, you know, in, in the book I talk about family family trauma we've had uh, uh quite a few sort of medical issues that we've had to deal with as parents my husband and I and as a family so when my dog wouldn't go for a walk it instantly triggered me into oh gosh you know we haven't we haven't sorted that and and that for me and in that moment I said right Samarine he's not going to walk he's never done that before he's actually literally not and he's a spaniel by the way he's never not gone for a walk so it's very, very strange behavior coming from me. And I tried two or three times to pull him. He wouldn't do it. So I had to take him home. And that for me was a, okay, I'm going to park that now. I'm going to give him something to make him feel more comfortable. And that is something I will deal with later. But I'm noticing myself respond this way. And that for me is mindfulness. Is in these moments is how can we catch ourselves in the workplace when we're task focused? when we're pulled in lots of different directions because of competing priorities and when we don't have the time to connect with ourselves and the environment around us we are not mindful yeah we are reactive i love that as interest whether you've knowingly done this deliberately or not it's there's a there's, for me there's been a bit of a full circle that's taken overboard here because you said earlier about we need to slow down sometimes. Now I say that phrase, slow down, speed up. It's not necessarily what you said, but there's a there's a piece there that we can actually progress much faster sometimes when we take a breath. But you mentioned, I'm a big fan of language. You mentioned noticing. Now I don't meditate, but I do know the, the, the thought processes we have, you talked about consciousness and spirituality. I'm not particularly spiritual either, but I do know that we can, if we change our thinking, we can change how we feel. And if we notice things, interestingly, it's that we often have a, there's a siren going outside but we have a um a fight or flight mode and often that means that we often want to hold on to the negative bits that's a bit like celebrating or having issues with the, the the three people not the 97 and we hold on to that so we notice the negative thoughts we hold on to them and we let our minds go mad and we, we let them play out stories and our stories are very powerful and yet often we don't let the positive ones in but i know something that can help individuals here from a mindful perspective is notice the thoughts come in and then notice them go away again yeah. And when you bring it back to nature, and I don't want to lose the audience here because this is, I do a great, I think it's great with my kids. I've got 39 year old. And every time we go for a walk, we've also got two dogs. We have the same task with it every time. And all, all three of us will have to notice five things. And we use our five senses, which I think oh, makes a lot of mindfulness. So what can you hear? And we'll, so we'll think of five things we can hear, four things you can touch. You know, you can go all the way through three things you can smell, one thing you can taste. And, you know, you can taste the air or you can, my son will pick up a nettle leaf or whatever it is. And we go, we go, you know, we do it every single time. It's a really nice thing for us. But I'm not to, I don't want to take out the commercial context, but you can do that in a commercial environment as well. If you're in that panic, if you slow down and go, okay, what can I hear? There's people talking here. There's a water cooler conversation, whatever. What am I noticing? What am I listening to? What am I feeling? And I mean, you brought this to the table here, the slow down, the noticing, the feeling. And I think you just... For me, that's really important around mindfulness. I'm not by far from a mindfulness expert. I've got a podcast called Mindful Pass. We talk about this quite a lot and it's something that's passionate for me. But I think for leaders, it's really important. We do slow down and just notice. Yes. Uh, you know, it's 
it can be so powerful if we're able to make that connection. In your experience, is have you seen any kind of, or can you give any examples? You definitely would have seen it, or some kind of, I guess, transformational or, or uh, examples where you've had someone just slow down with you and go actually and notice and you know, that 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 transitional change they go through where they suddenly go ah a bit like the team example you gave earlier which was a fantastic one yeah no I do and in fact a few examples have been circulating to remind as you've spoken and I've been trying to put some brackets and listen and one one of the examples I wanted to quickly give actually it referred to the example you gave with your family I, I, I do something really similar with my family actually and I've actually done that with uh individuals as well as teams that exact yeah. exercise you've just described and it's quite because it's safe and i think there is a bit of cynicism around mindfulness or meditation or take even breathing <laughs> when, when that's something that we do we, yeah. we actually do and um one example is i've got a really um highly strong client actually and he's uh, uh, uh an executive and he is hugely driven um when he first uh, started working with me, one of the things that he specifically wanted was to understand why he had a paralysis, a phase of paralysis. Uh, when he had that phase, it didn't last very long. It lasted a few months, but it really scared him and it frightened him. Young, really young, young family too, very senior role. And as I said, very driven and super passionate. And so we talked a lot about it cognitively as in so what does this mean and, and he's quite a sort of logical logic based person and it was very clear that there was a connection between the pattern and the rhythm of his life and his body basically saying no um as a uh, uh, Gabor Mate one of my favorite uh you know writers on this topic I won't, I won't go into too much there's so too much to say about him but he 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 actually wrote a book called When the Body Says No, and I think this is what this is what my client had uh, had discovered. But what what one of the things we had to do is to try to find things that that worked for him. And he said, "Look, I'm not going to meditate, Samri. I've tried it. I've tried the Calm app. I've tried uh, uh, Headspace. I've tried all these things. I don't. I don't." So I said, "Well, what can you do just to give yourself an opportunity to stay in the moment?" And we tried a few different things, little exercises. Uh, and then together, we I said, look, you're quite numerical and you like to run. So there's two things you can do. One is when you're running, just focus on the moment between when your heel hits the ground and when the front of your foot then hits. And literally just, just notice it. That will force you to stay in the moment when you're running. Sure. <laughs> that's it and don't think about it just notice it and as you said notice the feelings and if something comes out just oh I haven't I haven't I haven't noticed my next heel heel drop uh and then the second thing actually he came back to me the next time we met and he said well, actually something the other thing I, I that was brilliant it really definitely came. now the other thing I do now is I count because he lives in Holland so he counts the different the 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 you know oh. the tiles or the not the tiles but you know the whatever the pattern is that he's running on and he said it made such a big difference. Now, a few months later, actually, it was it was we 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 did uh, our work together uh, about eighteen months apart. We had two different coaching contracts. The next coaching contract, he said, I'd stopped doing my running. I stopped checking my heels. I've you know, and he said, and then I started doing them again, and I now have some space and time to just stop, literally stop the processing. He is processing because he's counting, but he's stopping the processing that's relevant 
for all of the pressures that are mounting for him in his daily life. It's a great example because the reality is actually it's a bit like counting before you go to sleep. He'll start counting and eventually it'll go into a state of flow where the counting yeah. stops and the, the thoughts just go and you're just you're just running. And that's when you're saying, oh, what wasn't counting anymore, but I've now done 5K or whatever it is. It's a great example. I mean, all humans like to go in pendulums, you know, we're in the future, we're in the past and that middle bit's really tough to stay in. You mentioned breathing. Breathing is often a really good way to bring us into the present. We breathe subconsciously all day long, but when we focus on breathing... When we focus on it. Exactly. Then it brings us into the now, which is a good thing to be able to do. Um, To bring it back into, uh, I guess, a a commercial structure, organisation sense for the HR leaders uh, that are listening to this at the minute... Why is everything we're talking about at the moment really important in relation to organisational culture? Because we, we hear the word culture thrown about, we're like paradox, uh, an awful lot of the time. And there's microcultures, which one leader could take, create a microculture in a much broader culture. Everyone's talking about values and inclusion, all these things that they kind of come into it. Why is it essential, though, that we therefore pay real attention to organisational mm-hmm. culture? It's, you know, it, there's so many angles that I can take on, on the answer to this question. And there's so, and in fact, I, I talk about, about two or three different angles in the book. Uh, but I, I'm going to choose, I'm going to be selective here. But, you know, what one, I'm going to share a metaphor that, um, and then two examples, one slightly personal, one a client. But the metaphor I'm going to use is is a, as an ecosystem. And, and you know, I'm just going to paint a picture of, of, of a lake Lovely. and, you know, some, real vibrant, colorful, very, you know, where there's vitality and there's nourishment by the various aspects of the ecosystem. You know, you've, you've got the, the lake itself, you've got, you know, trees and flora, and there's, there's you know, fauna from bees and insects all the way through to, to, to birds. And in the water, there are vibrant fish and, and they're uh, healthy and they're swimming along. And then, Something, I don't know what the cause is, but but something infects one of the organisms in that ecosystem. And let's just take it's a fish. And that fish gets really, really sick. And then there might be a bit of contagion. So a few fish get sick. And that impacts the water. And then that impacts also what the birds are eating, those those that feed on the fish. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to take it much further, but you can imagine what happens right now. The, the effect is on the system as a whole in lots of different parts. You use the word sub, sub parts, subcultures. But the effect is also to such an extent that even if you were to remove some of the cause and, you, you know, some of some of the infected fish die and um, they're removed from the ecosystem, um, the water's still murky. The, the 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 properties that that surround that that body of water are also probably affected and infected in some way, and the the fauna are 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 probably not not quite revitalized. So that for me is is a really um, helpful image when I consider culture in an organization. And the two examples I wanted to give is one, I'll start with the actually with the the more um, professional example. That professional example is one of a a coaching client that had worked in a a very, what she described and I certainly observed to be quite a toxic environment. She worked in L&D actually, uh, it's quite a senior role. And uh, she had limited, control and spheres of freedom in that environment, despite a lot of the 
espouse values and espouse narrative being about distributed leadership and freedom and creativity and collaboration. Uh, she dis would describe invisible tripping lines. She would talk about really exciting uh, projects and opportunities that she was trying to promote and she had a team and and they were, would, would create but the conditions in the environment were such that whether it was power plays whether it was interdependencies that didn't quite support the sponsorship for the initiatives that she was running it, they would they would just not they would, nothing would help hold the space or the, the fulfillment of any of these possibilities. Yeah. Now, within two years of knowing her, actually, I didn't work with her after she left. She left that environment, worked in a completely different organization, totally different industry, but learning and development and leadership, actually, and a different world. Now, it's really hard to compare the two cultures, but what she did describe, coming back to my metaphor, is that even in subcultures that didn't help, or where there were power differentials that got in the way, the, uh, the, uh, the, the opportunity and the invitation to have a dialogue was different. My caveat to that is that how she operated and engaged in that first culture influenced and was influenced by the culture. When she moved to a different culture, she would have been influenced by... Oh more curiosity oh you're new and you're probably in a far more or in a relatively more senior position to how she may have been perceived in the previous so you start to see how the different cultural aspects impact the ability for somebody to truly harness their potential yeah it's interesting it's interesting i'd be interested to know and we may get the answer to it today with that individual in particular who i of course don't know don't know who that individual is because she worked with them whether it was through her vision of what that culture was that was causing the issue or whether it was the culture one overall. And um, I know a question I want to ask, and I'll get to it in a moment, is you know, should we see our organisation through the cultural values or through the lens of our people? But if we think about, I don't know, a 30 mile per hour, car driving at 30 miles per hour. Now, for some people, they'd immediately go, or someone driving, they'd immediately bring up an image of someone going slowly. All right. But if, particularly if I said, well, that, that car is now on a motorway, you'd think, well, that's going really slowly. But that same car on a children's playground, same speed, you might think that's going way too fast. The car is just doing 30 miles an hour. It's the meaning that we we put on that speed or that car. And I'm probably not the best example, but hopefully you know, it's, it's really it is nice. a great example. The relative context is how we view that driver, that car, the whole thing. And we're putting the meaning on it. So with that context and that individual, and maybe she was in a toxic culture or maybe she viewed it differently or maybe there was somewhere between the two. And I, I won't know. But it leads me to ask the question I wanted to ask, which is when we talk about cultures and people always, you know, pushing, not to say pushing is unfair, but promoting their values and beliefs of the culture they have and promoting those things. Should we be assessing an organization in that context then through the culture they promote or through the lens of the people that, that they have working for them? And how would you approach that subject? Uh, and it comes back very much to, to the point you're making. And and actually the, 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 the caveat I made around the, interdependence between the individuals and the organizational culture yeah, nice. yeah. or the and I, I, you know you can you you can take this you can extend this to the functional aspects or the areas and how they interact interact and this is so we're getting into a very systemic uh 
frame for me as 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 you speak as as you're asking and and i think for me what, what what's really important is to understand the relational aspect of that because in the first uh, culture that this individual is in. I actually had experience of working with others within that culture as well, and it, it was it was fundamentally mm -hmm. toxic. And and you know, I mean, we won't go into some of the examples, but yes, it was it it was detrimental. And I think one of the the biggest signs was uh, the you know the the health of, of individuals and 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 some of the the stress and anxiety that that was cultivated and 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 cultivated more of a toxic environment whereas in the second example what and you know you know i spoke to her about 18 months in to the second organization it, it was it was very different and some of the as i said some of the power plays were still aspects that would exist in any organization but the manifestation of that was not in people stabbing people in the in the back yeah. or even being feeling ignored so i think in in that particular example she would have definitely learned from the previous culture and the the individual would have had an impact and an influence on her interaction and relational you know success or outcomes in more desirable outcomes in that in that second environment and i would say that applies you know across the board i think it depends depends entirely on how we perceive things, how we frame things. I often encourage my clients to, and in fact, this is a, a, probably a, a quite helpful way of describing this, to depersonalize some of the challenges that they're facing. And to it's a great way go up a bit and look at, look, and you know, and, and actually look at it from a third or or a fifth perspective, and to think, I'm making assumptions that this is entirely a an attack on me or a misconception of me and I'm being undermined or my authority is not legitimate in this environment. But when they raise above it and they look at some of the bigger systemic issues going on, they realize that some of these aspects and conditions are not necessarily relating to them. They're far more a reflection of what's going on in the system. And culture is no exception to that in any way. That depersonalization piece is really interesting. I mean, it links to the whole, you know, nothing has meaning till we give it meaning we put meaning upon yes. it but that power. exactly but that depersonalization is actually what allows us to give it a more it's more top level it allows us to sit back slow down and go actually is this something i'm perceiving in the way that i'm interpreting or it's like you can't read tone in an email but we often do you know if someone writes something we read it slowly <laughs> how many how many things have gone off off piece because of an email that's been written and meant in one way and, and received in another and interestingly in that example with the person you work with toxic culture or not before she probably was able to be more vulnerable in the new culture. We talk a lot about psychological safety, but actually I would think if you break it right down, it's the cultures that allow you to be vulnerable are often those that are most positive because vulnerability is contagious and people feel more, more comfortable in those environments. And certainly from an HR standpoint, you want your employees to be able to be feel like they can be vulnerable. You don't want them to be vulnerable, but you feel that they can be vulnerable if necessary, depending on what that situation is. It's really interesting. So I wanted to bring it into the book because you've written a book, fantastic title that creates all kinds of images for me as a visual learner and someone that visualizes everything. Leader, leader awakened, I think of awareness, I think of insight, insight leads to action. I'm like the visions of people sort of sleeping through leadership. And that's, you know, it's not necessarily what it's about. Yeah, yeah lovely. Yeah, that's exactly what I was. <laughs> <laughs> bring it to life for the listeners. Um, it's uh, It's been very, very well received. It's called Leader Awakened. There will be a link in the show notes for those that obviously want to purchase a copy and find out more. But Tell the audience more about your book. Well, goodness, I mean, look, thank you for saying that, and uh, and and it's 
it's very uh, reassuring and comforting to hear, you know, even that sleepwalking through leadership. So I, I will start with that because it really stood out. So the book talks on, touches on quite a few of the topics that you and I have, have explored today. No surprise there. I'm, I'm really uh, appreciative that you, you took the time to actually, you know, look into it as well. Um, and I do feel that in, you know, in we for, for lots of quite valid reasons, we tend to sleepwalk through life. And it's difficult or striking or unprecedented and unexpected situations that sometimes make us go, oh, what was I doing? Why was I doing that? What surface, what purpose rather was it serving? And what were the consequences of me not questioning this before? It's no secret in my book that because the title even says, you know, accept uh, adversities. Um, and there's no secret in the book that I talk by autobiographically about some the moments in my life where I had those wake ups. And one in particular is 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 quite a you know visceral one. My my son, my son at the year uh, when he was nine years old, he he was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor. We are very um, fortunate to be amongst the families that have survived that journey. And he is just over five years old clear, which we're, we're, we're incredibly, incredibly grateful for. Um, but actually that's not the purpose of the book. And the reason why I single it out as one of the traumatic incidents or pivotal moments in my life is because it's one that clearly made me question quite fundamentally my life. Uh, but there are three or four other aspects in there. One is around my personal identity. I'm half Venezuelan, half Indian, grew up in Venezuela, educated in the States and in Europe and, and have worked globally with, with, with people all over the world. It, it, that sounds, I don't know, some people have said that sounds really, you know, uh, glamorous and amazing and cosmopolitan, but actually the reality is as privileged as that is, there are times when you feel blooming confused about who you are and who you're trying to fit in with and who you're trying to stand out from and it is not an easy journey in life and I do notice that the narrative around some of these identity differences not just from a national perspective but um is 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 definitely you know being stirred up and 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 but it's not an easy one and and it's it, it doesn't come with you know, it, 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 well, it comes with quite a lot of, of risk. So the book does explore from my lens what, what that was like. Um, but I think more importantly, the book, although it has a huge number of stories, my own as well as several clients that I've worked with, many clients that I've worked with and client teams that I've worked with in organizations, I try to pull together uh, trends, current trends. We've talked about some of them today. Uh, I do talk about mental health and I talk about the realities that anxiety and stress, but also some of the longer term costs that anxiety and stress that we experience and unknowingly uh, allow ourselves to 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 go through in, in this day um, will potentially and most probably have an impact longer term on our physiology. And um, and that can span from, you know, from immune affecting our immune system now and I, I go through some a lot of the science because I studied biomedicine and natu naturopathy after my son 
went through that uh, whole treatment, you know, uh, experience and treatment, because I wanted to understand what I could do as a mother, but also as a person to influence more of the conditions that that will enable me to live a longer life and meet my grandchildren one day um, and continue to make the contributions that I make. So the book really does tie across what it's like to be a human in the world that we are today. Uh, Of course, I focus on leadership because I've worked with leaders all throughout my life. I've been a leader. I am a leader. And I think a leader is there are different connotations of leaders as well, which which I won't go into now. But um, I do define quite a few of those in the book. But I think for me, it's so important to remember that there are wake up calls we can have before one un- un- unwanted one takes place and there and and there's work that we can do to not sleep on through life as leaders it's a great overview um for me it's you know i love the human approach to leadership so i could li- talk to you for hours about this subject i'm so happy to hear obviously your son recovered but interestingly even in that example um you talked about sometimes being shocked into into understanding what this world is all about and the, the pressures we put ourselves under in the hr community and beyond we sometimes can get into such a fuzz that we don't lift our heads up and realize what we've got around us, whether it's nature, whether it's sound, smells, people we love, whatever it is. But there are positives in every every negative situation, whatever that might be, when we even go through trauma, whether that is that shock that suddenly makes us appreciate things a little bit more, whether it's changing our path like you have in terms of your learning and, and your appreciation for things that come back from a terrible and tra- very traumatic incident it must have been for you as a parent. I can only imagine, uh, and, um, you know, as a, as a parent to myself, it, um, it must have been very, very stressful. But now on, on, on the other side of it, of course, it's changed your perspective on things and made you more appreciative. And I think we can all learn from that. Anyone, no matter where you are, no matter you're a C-suite, billionaire CEO, it doesn't matter. We can all learn from just being a little bit more connected to whatever it is that, that, that actually gives us purpose and gives us meaning and sort of coming away from the abundant things. It's interesting you mentioned um, your, your cosmopolitan is the word you use, background and where you've lived. Now, I don't know if you're on Instagram or something, but it's the kind of thing that for me looking at might I might bring an envious bit out of me. I think, oh, it's in India, it's been here, what a great actually, but no one really knows what's going on behind the image. We give our we portray our best versions of ourselves. And actually the true versions are often the the, the raw individual that sits behind that. And um I'm really appreciative of you bringing your story to the show and your um humanistic approach to, to, to leadership, which really resonates for me. Hopefully it does for my listeners as well, because I love I love your your approach to mindfulness and your approach to leadership. And it's a great book and it's in the show notes, so do get yourself a copy. So I'm going to open the HRLD vault. Interestingly, the last question in this in, in this uh, vault is about leadership. So I'll be interested to see your, your response on that. Um, first question is, in hindsight, what's the one thing you know now that you wish you'd known when you began your leadership career? Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So I was given this advice, but I didn't I didn't believe it at the time and um, rely less on I would tell myself to rely less on what I have to know and be really in tune with what I'm learning as I move forward and that ties very very closely with the whole relational aspect and and concept uh, uh, that that applies to my coaching practice. Um, when I coach, I I you know 
I definitely prepare and I look at my notes and I think, oh gosh, am I, do I know everything? I did it for this, you know, oh, do I know everything I need? I've written a book and do, have I, do I know everything enough? You know, do I remember that stat, you know? And, and I think this is something that I certainly, there's a hole inside me that I fill with uh, the need to know. So I think that would probably be, you know, nice. less, less of an emphasis. I mean, actually focusing on the journey, really, is not the destination, isn't it? It's, you don't need to know the answers. It's yeah. all the learning experience. Interestingly, yeah. I mean, usually this is the first time because I've travelled down today from Devon. For those that usually watch this on video rather than audio, you'll notice that I've usually got guitars in the background and three frames. Now, if you can't see the pictures in the frame, it says life is about stories. That's it. That's my mantra. Right? And interesting, you've written your book, through stories that's what we have on our deathbeds at the end of it when someone's there we're going to retell the stories that that impacted us that's the bit we want to hold on you get those through the journey and i think the pandemic showed us one thing a lot of people felt that um taking away the the, the, the devastation of the, those that got sick of course but for those that found themselves at home unable to work for whatever reason actually we everyone a lot of people felt that's what they wanted i want to have time out where i can sit and just do nothing and actually people realize without that purpose, without that ability to create new stories for ourselves, mental health plummeted. What we thought we wanted actually wasn't what we wanted at all. We wanted that journey. We wanted that learning experience. That you, that you have. I, I love your response. So that's me <laughs> not articulating it very well, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you in that space. Uh, next question. What advice do you give to someone new who's just starting out in this new world of work? So a younger you, if you like, just starting out in the new world of work. Uh, that's. I love that question because I've, recently been connecting quite closely with younger uh just I, I don't know what to call them because they're just incredible people and and I look back and think if I was like half of the people that I keep meeting now at that age I would be I would just have so much more understanding and intuition in my journey at, at such an earlier age yeah. and I, I I mean, look, I'm very aware that the the, the Gen Y, Gen Z, there there is a boldness uh, to this to this uh, cohort segment of of humanity that I'm. Do I envy it? Do I think God? I wish I was a bit like that. You know, I I do. I sometimes, think, but equally, I feel that that boldness needs to be coupled with some of the vulnerabilities and some of the curiosities and in a lot of the people I meet at that age, there is an in, innate confidence I would never want to, I would never want to diminish. But that, but but it's about having that curiosity to to look in as well as to project out. And my experiences is, and I, that's, it sounds like a real generalization and, and I don't mean it that way, but I certainly feel that some of the younger generation um, can actually look in a bit more, look really, truly. They might have a sense of purpose, but actually look in and truly understand. And that needs a, a, a sort of grasp on it, you know, having wisdom and intuition. So connecting with and feeling that there is a lot of value in some of us older, you know, generations is going to be important. Uh, but looking in, just really trying to to stay with themselves and understand who they really are, um, which is probably applies to my younger self as well. I think I think in the in the workplace, it's easy to get influenced or pulled. Or and I think about my kids and in, in school in the school environment, it's similar. So just really trying to yeah to ground and understand who who I really am, 
Great. Uh, I'll give that little section to my daughter to listen to. She's 13 years old. It's really important, though. It really is. It really is. And actually, you said sometimes I wish I may have been a bit bolder, but if you were at that point in time, you wouldn't be, you'd be somewhere else right now. Um, I can't remember who it was. There's someone, someone much more um, uh, intelligent and, and famous than, than me on this show who said, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Oh, what a lovely way of putting it. Uh, last question, which relates to leadership, so I'm intrigued to get your answer. But what's the single, it's maybe hard to narrow down to one, what's the single greatest quality that you have seen in every great leader that you've worked with? A thirst for learning. Yes. Uh, but like a real, a real sort of, yeah, wanting to learn. Because my sense is that that mindset and I know a lot of people call it the growth mindset, but it's that it just it it breeds flexibility, it breeds openness, it breeds all the qualities necessary to connect with the unraveling context that they navigate and the people around them and 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 can challenge assumptions, but also hold themselves in a space of learning, constant evolution. Absolutely critical. Without even knowing it, Sammy, you put it right round to bring all the LD listeners right back into the room with that last bit. They'll be they'll be really pleased you brought up the most important quality. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you today on the HLND podcast. Of course, for those who want to find out more about Turmeric Group, uh, you can go to turmericgroup.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Go to the site, have a look around, have a navigate. There's a really good opportunity for you to unleash the power within your organization, if that's what you want to do, or unleash the power within your own leadership capabilities by working directly with San Marine. So do check out the website. I will be a link to the uh, the wonderful book, uh, Leader Awakened, in there as well, and also a link to uh, San Marine's profile if you want to find out more. So please do check those out in the show notes. And of course, if you are an HR LD professional lead- listening to this show and you need support with an HR-related vacancy, well, that's how I can come in or any of my wonderful team at jjrecruitment.com. Uh, again, a link will be in the show notes and I would love to hear from you all if we can help. Just leaves me to say a huge thank you once more, Sammy McGregor, for being on the HLND podcast. Fantastic guest. I could have spoken to you for hours. It's been my privilege. So thank you so much. Likewise, Nick. Thank you. Thank you very much. 